Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 36. The Screwtape Letters, Letter 18. What's love got to do with it? Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior dean, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. And today, I'm joined by a guest co-host, a man who appeared on an After Hours episode last season, where he unpacked the apparent disagreement between C.S. Lewis and St. Augustine on the nature of love. Dr. Love himself, Dr. Jason Lepoyavi. And for those of you who have only been listening since the start of this season, Dr. Lepoyavi was born to a Canadian mother and a Finnish father. He studied theology and philosophy at the University of Helsinki. His master's thesis focused on the theology of the body and sexuality by Pope John Paul II, and was published as the first introduction to the subject in Finnish. As a visiting Field candidate at Oriel College, Oxford, he served as the president of the Oxford University C.S. Lewis Society from 2012 to 2013. And after marrying his wife Issa in 2013, he was appointed the Junior Research Fellow in Theology at St. Bennett's Hall. He's also worked as a Scholar-in-Residence at Regent College in Vancouver, Assistant Professor to Religious Studies at Thornlow University in Ontario, and his doctoral dissertation, God is Love, But Love is Not God, C.S. Lewis's Theology of Love, analyzed C.S. Lewis's position in and contribution to the debate on love that has preoccupied much of the 20th century Protestant and Roman Catholic thought. And today, he's here to co-host a discussion of Letter 18 of the Screwtape Letters. Dr. Jason Lepoyavi, welcome back to Pints with Jack. Well, thank you, David. It's a pleasure and greetings from Canada. <laughs> so what have you been up to since last being on the show? Because that's about 10 months ago, I think. Time flies uh, when you're in lockdown. I've, uh, <laughs> it is Canada, so I've been traveling snow. I've been reading bedtime stories and, and uh, critiquing cancel culture. After all, I work at a university. The basics, ordinary stuff. <laughs> and I've been noticing you on my YouTube feed much more recently. What have you been working on? Well, you've been noticing me, David, because I just recently joined YouTube. Actually, I resurrected an old empty shell of a channel that I apparently had launched 12 years ago. But I uh, relaunched it and I'm experimenting, killing time. I decided this term to post two lecture series, both on the Inklings. So one on the Chronicles of Narnia and looking at Dr. Michael Ward's planet theory in particular and then the other on C.S. Lewis and love. So I think each series will have about seven to ten lectures, and um, we're in lecture three or four now. I'm probably, maybe, going to upload a few standalone Tolkien lectures as well. Surprisingly, the most popular lecture so far has proven to be the lecture on logical fallacies, where I introduce 20 common argumentation mistakes. And um, it's actually relevant for inkling studies for C.S. Lewis and Tolkien because some of the, or many of the examples of fallacies that I give are examples that have been applied to Lewis or Tolkien or, or fellow inklings. 
Wonderful. And I've been posting them on our blog and Facebook page, so you can find them there. And everybody, then please go and follow the YouTube channel because the content is really good and you're getting this for free. Come on. <laughs> so just before we kick off, is there anything that you wanted to say in general about today's letter from Screwtape? Well, maybe I could say that this particular letter on love seems to be very important for Lewis because a lion's share, notice what I did there, <laughs> a lion's share of Lewis's versatile literary output is preoccupied uh, or devoted to love. And so many of the ideas that are in seed in this particular letter, letter 18, about love, find themselves into Lewis's later works, further developed above all the four loves, but also some essays and so on. So this is a particularly important letter for Lewis. In a recent recording with Matt, I went through one of the Screwtip letters, and I quoted a lot from The Four Loves, and we've been batting around what book we're going to do next season. I think he's kind of settled on The Four Loves now. So we'll, we'll see how that works out. We're ultimately going to let the people decide. But uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. And reading these two side by side, there's a very synergistic relationship in your understanding. As you read one, the other one becomes clearer. Because I think there are actually a couple of things that Lewis says, saying that particularly in this letter, that's not brilliantly clear. But when you compare it against the book of the four loves you get a better idea of what he's been shooting at i think you're right and they're not perfectly clear for two reasons one is that this comes three two decades before the four loves so he had time to develop his ideas but also because everything's perverted into a devilish logic right so that adds an extra layer of uh, in, interpretative uh, fog so i agree I'd actually add a third one. This was also before he got married. And as you and I both know, getting married is a real education. <laughs> well, we'll return to that, I'm sure, in today's uh, discussion. Well, let's push on. As you know, each episode we share a quote, a drink, and a toast. And since we're talking about love, sex, and marriage today, we had lots of choices for the song of the week. Uh, given that it's a discussion on marriage, we could have had Get Me to the Church on Time from My Fair Lady. Um, given the discussion is also about romance, I thought we might do Can't Help Falling in Love by the King Elvis Presley. That was rather tempting. And given the discussion of the marital embrace and sex, the boys to men classic I'll Make Love to You would have been very fitting. But in the end, I ended up going with Tina Turner and a classic, which brings together many of these ideas, which is what's love got to do with it? And along with Miss Turner, today we're going to be asking some probing questions about the relationship between love, sex, and marriage. So, that was the song of the week, the quote of the week. It comes from today's letter, and in it, Screwtape writes, We have done a great work through the poets and novelists by persuading the humans that a curious and usually short-lived experience, which they call being in love, is the only respectable grounds for marriage. That marriage can and ought to render this excitement permanent, and that a marriage which does not do so is no longer binding. And for the drink of the week, I am drinking Thai Fu Tea, which I recently found out was the brand that was typically drunk by Lewis. Are you drinking anything? Well, I am. I'm drinking my morning coffee. We recently bought a one of those pod, these Nespresso makers, thinking that that would save money and we'd drink less. <laughs> this, is, this is my fourth cup this morning. It's delicious. <laughs> 
and we're broke, by the way. <laughs> so talking to a poor, wired professor. Awesome. Well, let's do the toast because one of the benefits for Gold Level supporters on Patreon is a personalized toast. And today we're toasting Rachel Ross. Rachel, thank you for all that you bring to the Slack community, for your inquisitiveness, honesty, and enthusiasm. May you always reject Screwtape's zero-sum game approach to life, and instead always be filled to overflowing with the love of God. Cheers. Cheers, Rachel. And the last piece of housekeeping is the chapter summary. And so this is the summary of letter 18, which was first published in The Guardian on the 29th of August, 1941. Screwtape offers a seminar on sex, marriage, and love. Professor Screwtape explains that God demands from us abstinence or monogamy. The former was made harder since the fall, the latter encumbered by romantic writers. Heaven's philosophy of love makes no sense to Screwtape, preferring hell's zero-sum game perspective. Screwtape unpacks the properties of sex, which makes it favorable to the enemy its association with affection, as well as being the very means of family building. He concludes by explaining hell has taught humans to see being in love as the only reason for entering into and remaining in marriage. Screwtape begins this letter by saying to Wormwood that he should have learned about sexual temptation at the training college under Slubgob. Now, Screwtape has already expressed a distaste for the amphibian nature, as he described it, of humanity, the fact that we're both spirit and body, that we're this composite. And it's clear that he finds the whole subject of sexual temptation immensely tedious. So because he dislikes that so much, he says he's just going to focus on the larger issues in this letter. And so over the course of this letter, he looks at the dilemma which God gives humanity, and he considers the relative philosophies of heaven and hell, and then talks about what it is about sex that can draw us to God and its relationship to love and marriage, and, as usual, how he's planning on twisting it. And he begins by explaining that God presents humanity with something of a dilemma. He says, either complete abstinence or unmitigated monogamy. These are the choices that God gives us. And he explains that hell has made both of these much harder. For the first one, he says, ever since our father's great victory, we have rendered the former, complete abstinence, very difficult to them. And in the latter, that's where he had the quote of the week. He says, unmitigated monogamy for the last few centuries, we've been closing up as a way of escape. We've done this through the poets and novelists by persuading the humans that a curious and usually short-lived experience, which they call being in love, is the only respectable ground for marriage. That marriage can and ought to render this excitement permanent, and that a marriage which does not do so is no longer binding. This idea is our parody of an idea that came from the enemy. So I think there's a lot to unpack here, but I want to ask you, would you say that this victory that Screwtape mentions is probably the fall in Genesis 3? And what is it about that, do you think, that makes complete abstinence harder? Goodness, David. Start with something easier. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think it, it is the fall, rendering complete abstinence harder. Lewis held a, an interesting or a peculiar view of the original innocence. And maybe Pope John Paul II would agree with him, but Lewis believed that 
the fact that we do not control our body fully is partially the result of the fall. Augustine went so far as to bemoan the fact that he couldn't control his erection. (laughs) (laughs) That a perfect being ought to control his erection and sexual arousal. They didn't teach me that in Catholic high school. I don't ever recall (laughs) hearing that. (laughs) True story. Uh, So the fact that you cannot control your sexual appetites fully, Lewis thinks, is partially the fault of the fall. I'm not sure whether he would agree with Augustine that we that we should fully control everything because we are corporeal beings and so we share this animal nature as well. Um, I don't know why abstinence is so difficult. We know biologically why it's difficult, what hormones do to our brains. And there's also a spiritual dimension there. We want to conquer. We want, we want new thrills. We are easily bored by old thrills. And so it's a, it's a messy subject. There's an interesting paradox in Lewis about sex, because notice how Screwtape calls the question of sexual temptation tedious, as you said. Tedious, probably primarily because devils are spiritual, non-corporeal beings, and they're not too interested in that, and they don't understand it fully either. But maybe, maybe it's tedious for a second reason, too, is that it's so boring. Sexual sins are so commonplace. Mm. And for a veteran demon like Screwtape, it's like low-hanging fruit. He's more ambitious. He would like to move on to the sins of pride, which are more interested, interesting and, and devilish. And, and Lewis did believe that in the hierarchy of sins, sexual sins perhaps are not very high, partly because he thought that the, the non-corporeal dimension of humanity, when perverted, results in more damage and heartbreak, but also because sexual sins are so common and numerous that perhaps their disproportionate (laughs) number among instances of individual sins uh, makes sinners less culpable or it's more understanding that we do fall repeatedly in this area of life because everybody does. Mm -hmm. It's, It's still a sin, but obviously look left, look right. Obviously it's a sin that's very difficult to avoid. But the the possible contradiction or the tension comes from the fact that on one hand, Lewis thinks these sexual sins are quite low in the hierarchy of sins. And on the other hand, he spends so much time talking about them, <laughs> about it in many of his books. And so one proposal that may diffuse this tension is to say that, well, Lewis spent so much time talking about it because he believed that it was a subject that he could speak about and that he could understand and that was relevant to society and might be helpful and that he could understand it because he had lived through it and he lives through it even as a non-married man or maybe in particular. And and so he understood the the temptation from the inside, unlike, as you may remember, 
the temptation of gambling mm. that that didn't tempt him at all and so he doesn't speak about it much at all i think that's a wonderful point and actually circling back to the the question of what is it about the fall that makes complete abstinence harder the the word that popped into my mind was concupiscence the idea that in the fall the ordering of our values is very easily disrupted and messed up which means that we put the wrong things first ultimately it should be you know god and then family and then work and everything else around it uh but mm. because of concupiscence we don't control our passions and so lesser passions rule greater ones and we already mentioned the four loves lewis's solution is that ultimately these need to be subservient to and infused with divine love and so he felt that he could perhaps speak to that clearly this is an idea that I think he learned from a Swiss theologian called Denis de Rougemont, mm. whose famous quote, love becomes a demon when it becomes a god, found its way into the four loves later. And Lewis says in his letters and in his review of Denis de Rougemont's book, Love in the Western World, that he nailed it. Denis de Rougemont's psychological analysis of the predicament of modern relationships, marital relationships, was spot on, where we use this idea of falling in love. We put it first in the order of things. It's a second thing that should stay in second place, but we put it in first place, as you say, the, the confusion of values, and that leads to a lot of heartbreak. And so we use it as a moral alibi to justify our weaknesses and our whims and yes and lewis has a lot to say about that later on in his very last essay that was published i think a month after his death we have no right to happiness which is basically a further development of his chapter on eros in the four loves well speaking of eros why has unmitigated monogamy been made harder through the poets and the novelists. What's Screwtape got in mind here? This is another difficult question because it is so easy to beg the beg the question by um, there's a there's a mystery to sin and disruption that even concupiscence doesn't fully a answer. It's con the the word concupiscence sometimes. Or the idea is just rephrasing the problem in a different, using different terminology, but it's still a mystery. And so why has, why have the poets and the novelists done this belongs to the same mystery of evil. So I can't speak to that much because I don't understand it much, but I do seem to understand one thing. And I wonder what you think of this, David. You may remember from Tolkien the theory of sub-creation, that human beings created, and this obviously will relate to poets and novelists because they're creators, literary creators. But according to Tolkien, because we're built, made in the image of God, who is a creator, storytelling is, is a, almost a divine um, office that storytellers can and this is talking to be very daring theologically. He says storytellers and 
any kind of creators can participate in not only in the creation of the world and life together with God, but also in the redemption of that world somehow. And if this is so, if the faculty of sub-creation, our creative impulse, is a faculty just like our will or our, or our heart or our reason or whatnot, it's a double-edged sword that has been affected by the fall too. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's, it's totally innocent. So we can use or abuse this faculty, as Tolkien says in the poem Mythopoeia. Yeah, he says, the right has not decayed. We still make by the law in which we are made. It was our right, yes. The law in which we are made, the law being God is a creator and we're made in his uh, nature. And so, now circling back to screw tape, the poets and novelists who have confused the order of values, who have put these silly thoughts in our head of the experience of falling in love being the only grounds for marriage or for staying in marriage, have been abusing their sub-creative faculty. They've kind of disrupt life. They haven't contributed to its redemption or its creation. They've thrown hurdles at, at flourishing, made it difficult to flourish. I think this is a why I found this interesting is that sometimes Tolkien's idea of contributing to the affiliation and mutual enrichment of life, as he says in on fairy stories, is kind of vague and theoretical. How exactly can a poet contribute to redemption? How could an, a visual artist contribute to creation with God? Um, but here you see it. Here you see the reverse very well. Bad ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences. And sometimes it can be very tangential even to the subject that's being discussed and put in mind of the Green Book that uh, teaches people bad philosophy, ultimately resulting in, as the book itself is called, the abolition of man. You know, (laughs) all of that began with a grammar book. So they weren't even directly talking about philosophy. Mm. What this put me in mind of is, uh, (laughs) among some of my friends, they call things emotional porn. Mm. When you have a story of such a twisted love, but it's held up in some way for imitation. Mm. It's it's kind of like in the same way that you root for James Bond, who is an anti-hero and a terrible person. Yes, yes. Even, Even bad things can be held up and you can be romantic about them in the sense of that you actually are, are rooting for them, you're desiring them, you're seeing that these things are good, even if they are incredibly twisted. And unless you remember that they're incredibly twisted, those ideas can become your ideas. Yes, good point. You see this in many um, movies as well, where the story almost exonerates the adulterers. Mm-hmm. You know, we're so happy for for the two people finally, finally falling in love and, and getting each other, like in the old movie Titanic. But why are we so happy? Well, we're happy because in the story, their former spouses were complete idiots. The husband was violent and unfaithful. And so it's a relief when they finally get each other. They deserved it. 
it's a trick. I become pretty allergic to it. I, I didn't even realize. It took me, I think it was in my 20s before I really started to see this hidden propaganda mm-hmm. in many places. This uh, uh, screw tapes, poets and novelist minions. <laughs> They're handiwork. Well, it's when you watch a movie for years and you eventually realize you got it completely backwards. Like when you realize that in The Karate Kid, Danny LaRusso is the bad guy. <laughs> what? He's the bad guy? <laughs> oh, I have a video to send oh, no. you. Oh my goodness, yes. Well, if you think about a lot of his actions, he he antagonized and tormented this young karate student who was going to win the All Valley Tournament. And in the end, he wins with an illegal head kick. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay, we need to push on with screw tape, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort this out, don't worry. Uh, what do you think? May I ask you a question? Sure. So at the very end of the second paragraph in this letter, Screwtape says that this idea is our parody of an idea that came from the enemy. Mm. What do you think is the idea, the divine idea that the devil parodies here? I think the divine idea is what he's going to be unpacking shortly about the relationship between romance and marriage, that this is part and parcel of a good marriage. This will be nurtured and fostered. And what Screwtape wants people to do is to focus on the fruit, not the thing that's actually causing the fruit. And because it's so intrinsically bound up in it, we're very easily fooled. Uh, I think of The Great Divorce where George MacDonald's character, he says, because it's so good, it's much easier to stop at the natural level and mistake it for something heavenly. He says brass Mm -hmm. is mistaken for gold more easily than clay is because it looks so much like it. And I think we have a built-in capacity and instinct in ourselves to look for love and all of the things that we see around that. And we can very easily mistake that for the, the means or the actual thing that we really want, not that it is a byproduct of something even better. I see what you mean. Well, let's talk about the philosophy of heaven and hell. Uh, I, I think Scootape does this because he, he needs Wormwood and us to understand why love makes no sense to him. He says the whole philosophy of hell rests on the recognition of the axiom, the self-evident truth, that one thing is not another thing, and especially that one self is not another self. And because of that, my good is my good and your good is your good. What one gains, another loses. And he even says to be means to be in competition. Hmm. And in a summary, I call this a zero-sum game. Because in economics, you talk about zero-sum games. Basically, the idea that my win is your lose. Everything is a win-lose situation. If you lose, I win. I win, you lose. This is utterly contrasted with the philosophy of heaven. And he says that heaven actually tries to evade this obvious veracity of hell's philosophy, which is so obvious and clear. Heaven seems to suggest it's possible to have a win-win situation. Screwtape writes, God aims at a contradiction. Things are to be many, yet somehow also one. The good of oneself to be the good of another. This impossibility God calls love. And this same monotonous panacea, this cure, can be detected under all he does and even all he is or claims to be. Heaven believes that there is such a thing as mutual flourishing and even sacrificing yourself for another. The, the very traditional definition of love that Lewis steals from Aquinas 
basically, that I will put your good, your happiness, I will come out of myself and put you first. And Screwtape says that this is just an entirely ludicrous idea that is even found in God himself. He says uh, he's not content even himself to be a sheer arithmetical unity. He claims to be three as well as one in order that this nonsense about love may find a foothold in his own nature. What do you think his point is on that? Because he doesn't spell it out too much. What is the big deal about God being a trinity? First of all, I like your, I like how you describe the zero-sum game philosophy that Screwtape here proposes and endorses as the hellish philosophy. Uh, Screwtape seems to suggest that God is lying about love. God is lying even about himself. You know, the enemy claims this or that. He doesn't take the enemy. He doesn't take God at his word. But then Lewis, at the very beginning of the screw tape, in the introduction, the preface reminds readers that we cannot even always trust screw tape. And so I'm not convinced that screw tape disbelieves God here. It seems rather that screw tape resents God for this fact. He doesn't think God is really lying because, on the other hand, by bemoaning the fact, he's acknowledging the fact that actually affection and pleasure and sex can be co-joined in human procreation, just like God claims and wanted it to be. And so Screwtape seems to give God credit inadvertently for actually creating a reality um, that screw tape doesn't just want to accept not that it's a facade or that god is lying yeah i'm not sure if he would just say that that was a smokescreen it's like oh yeah he sprinkled some things here and there just to try and back up this cock and bull story about disinterested love uh i i, I think it's, he just really doesn't understand he might even tacitly believe that god is like this but he just can't wrap his head around it it, it's like when you do a nice turn for somebody and they're immediately suspicious. Yes, cynical. They, they don't understand. They they can sort of see why maybe somebody who cared about mm -hmm. them might do that, but why did you do that? Yes. And they're immediately on their guard and they're suspicious and they're, they're looking for an alternative explanation. Because they have their the zero-sum philosophy and your actions don't square up with their philosophy. So there must be some hidden motive. I think you're right um, that he tacitly does believe this about God, um, but doesn't understand it. And yet he is trying to pull the rug under the enemy's credibility. Enemy claims this or claims that. Um, and so there's this maybe an evasion of the fact that he screw tape is secondary. Screw tape is limited and there are greater things that he does not understand. And so he accuses the enemy of actually lying. Well, Screwtape is well trained because that was Satan's sin and that was the sin in the garden. The serpent comes and basically says to Eve, God is holding out on you. Mm -hmm. Here is something good that he doesn't want you to have. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. You need to go around him and assert your own will. That's how you're going to find the happiness and flourishing that you know you want. 
what do you think screw tape means? I don't fully understand this. I can understand a zero-sum philosophy played out materially in terms of, say, apples. You've got two apples, David, I've got one apple, and you take my one apple, you have three apples, and I have zero apples. Mm. So in these sort of examples, I get it. But what would it mean to not steal someone's apple, but to suck their will and freedom, as Screwtape here says, that devils want to suck out wills and freedoms? What does that even mean? Can that happen? I think it can happen. And I think we see it in this world between humans quite often. Quite a lot of Lewis's characters are about one person trying to control another. Mm. Andrew's going to love this till we have faces. <laughs> you know, what what is Oral? She's spending all of her time trying to control Psyche. Yes, she's trying to consume Psyche, and that means taking everything that Psyche is and bringing it under her sphere of of control and safety, so that Psyche isn't flourishing in her own right. Psyche's own freedom and independence are not respected as being something separate. Therefore, Orwell wants to heavy-handedly, be it physically, be it by threats, be it by subtle manipulation, she wants to control Psyche's will. So I think this mysterious, devilish consumption of wills and feeding on one another is maybe just a more spiritualized version of that. In... Till we have faces, Orwell does succeed partially in this. She does succeed partially to um, limit or thwart other people's freedoms and ability to choose, sure. But does her own freedom and her own will expand as a result? Does she? Can she actually take psyche's apple if the apple is freedom or will and take it so that her own apple or basket of apples grows i don't see that happening so i see the zero-sum game apply just partially in the fact that you can destroy things but as a result you don't actually add on to yourself um, these virtues that you've destroyed in the others You've just destroyed goodness. You haven't moved goodness from one ownership to the other. I wonder what you think about this. I think Screwtape's zero-sum logic is not only not the right logic, that heaven's expansive logic is, is correct and better, but that it's not even inherently consistent or a coherent logic because this zero-sum game actually does not benefit and help the abuser to grow but it's a form of self-destruction so that heavenly expansive logic one plus one equals three but in the zero screw tape zero sum logic one minus one doesn't even equal one i mean zero it equals minus zero. What do you think? I think it definitely 
turns the object into a husk of its true self. I could compare it to two we have faces. Let's pick a different example. In The Great Divorce, you have the overbearing wife that wants to control her husband. Mm. She does control him in life. That actually does happen. Mm. But what does she actually get? Does she get a husband who is flourishing, who is everything that he could be? No, she gets she gets a, a, a husk of what that actually is. A, a um, Something that's had all of the life drained out of it. In The Great Divorce, we're told that hell is nearly nothing. And it's because these souls are nearly nothing. All that is good is just being siphoned away from it. Mm-hmm. And not only does, does the person doing the controlling not get what they're actually really wanting, mm. it also has a, a, an effect on them. I'm thinking of, say, the Tragedian, where you see that you have this, this little, little dwarf character. He himself starts to shrink and become smaller himself. Yes. Because he's holding on to that chain. And as his wife says, it's killing you. Mm. Now, that's really good. I think that il- illustrates this point quite well, that when you destroy someone else's freedom, on one hand, you, maybe you have some control over that person, but you haven't expanded your own freedom. And so the choice isn't really between heavenly logic and screw tapes logic, because screw tapes logic kind of crumbles. It's a self-destructive logic. So the choice is between love and death, really. Yeah. And it's just affirming the truth of Denis de Rougemont that Lewis takes as his own, that the natural loves can't even be themselves. Mm. Your, your desire to have this good thing, if you make that the greatest thing, it will end up being twisted and distorted and not even being itself. You, you could compare it to, say, a husband and wife who love each other and who give themselves to each other on their wedding night versus a prostitute. Mm. (laughs) These two things could look fairly similar, but they're utterly different because of the way that the people involved are coming to each other. And and I think that's the real, that's the mind-bending thing then about the Trinity, because this is an icon of persons pouring out to one another in love so that, John Paul II, he referred to the Holy Spirit as actually the love between the Father and the Son. This is the tangible, almost tangible, uh, this is this is the tangible love between the Father and the Son. And these are three persons who are one. They are not in competition. And out of this communion of love, this society of persons, you have everything created. You have the entire cosmos that is born out of the love from this relationship. Screwtape notices that trinitarian roots of some of god's claims and if the choice is between a trinitarian expansive understanding of love and a zero-sum understanding of love in society think of um, like justice if justice is zero a zero zero-sum game that you cannot actually have more justice you have a fixed amount of justice or love in the world and it just circulates when somebody gets it the other person or the other tribe or the other country or nation loses it somehow and if this picture is not true if you if justice can actually grow in the world or if love can actually grow in the world um how does how does that work like, I've been trying to understand how love could 
how could you, how you could have more love in the world than you had like than yesterday mm -hmm. i would say because it's not a fixed commodity it's not a simple economic exchange it is something much more organic where life can bring more life where love can bring more love jesus said that unless a grain of wheat dies it won't bear its fruit and if all of this is based in God, who is himself a community of persons with infinite love, then that means that there is a capacity in the world for infinite love because it has a, a battery, a source, a generator that can power mm. all the love that we're willing to receive and pass on. So how do we tap into this generator, perhaps, would be the question. How, because Screwtape does have a point and obviously he has many points because he just distorts truth. Effective lies have an element of truth in them. I think the element of truth is that the saying you can't give what you don't have is is partially true. Nemo dat quod non habit. Yes. Like how can you love if you haven't been loved, for example? And we understand that many people who struggle with love and have had a terrible upbringing or terrible genes or just just almost their personhood has been shattered by prolonged abuse, we sympathize with them. And even our courts of justice take that into account and, some, and sometimes pass more lenient judgments and penalties to these sort of people. And yet people can who have experienced all this, they can still flourish and turn their lives around. That happens as well. And so how do you tap into the generator? I think as Christians, our easy answer would be that, you know, you just become a, a believer, start praying, go to church, read the Bible, develop and cultivate the spiritual life. And that somehow taps into God's love. And I think this is the this is a an interpretation of the four loves that many readers bring into and read into the four loves. Uh, maybe next time, if you have a series on the four loves, um, and you invite me back, I could challenge this and propose a different reading. I don't think charity in the four loves means God's love. If you read it more closely. It's, it means something more tangible and even secular. Huh. Um, but we, we're so accustomed to reading charity as agape, as this sort of a divine solvent that is somehow mysteriously poured down from heaven to replace or rejuvenate our loves, that we miss all the obvious hints at what charity is in the four loves. But putting that aside, I don't dispute the fact that God helps, obviously. God helps. God helps. <laughs> God helps. But if I want to understand kind of the mechanisms of how love can grow in the world, apart from the sacraments, for example, I can think of two things, and I'll just throw them out there and tell me what you think, David. One is forgiveness. Mm -hmm. People who have been forgiven forgive they find it easier to love and love is the appreciative and the responsive commitment to the beloved's flourishing it seems that people who have been 
forgiven somehow the, the they feel freed and these new wells of love are open they tap into the generator so to speak by forgiving and asking for forgiveness you see this even in small things where people feel bad about something they've done and when they're finally forgiven for that thing by another person it's really liberating and obviously there's the famous parable or the story by Jesus of the the woman who was forgiven much and was able to love much as a result and so if this is true on the interpersonal level it must be true on the vertical level so if you're forgiven at some sort of ontological metaphysical fundamental level for not just individual sins but for being a sinner and and this would be a uh, like a really thick cable into the generator really re-energizes you and explains some of the changed lives that people report and witnesses in others post-conversion so that's my, what's one proposal is that forgiveness seems to disrupt the zero-sum game and allow love to grow and justice to grow. It creates new love that wasn't there. My other proposal is that babies do that. <laughs> Not always. We, there are, Just the there good ones. Are so, no, nothing to do with the babies. <laughs> Something to do with more with the context of how the babies brought about and reared. I mean, sometimes babies lead to not just good things around them, but sorrow and heartbreak. Um, there are terrible examples as well. I don't want to downplay that or ignore that or deny that. But I'd say that overall, and especially ideally, when a new baby is born, so some someone who wasn't here, who wasn't in the zero-sum game before, suddenly someone was added to the total sum of people. Mm -hmm. The baby brings with her or with him new love that wasn't there before. Parents find in themselves new resources for love. Resources that don't make them love other people less necessarily. Mm -mm. Don't make them abuse their other relationships. You know, temporarily, they might not be able to invest that much time into their friendships or something like that. But it's not really a zero-sum game, but that they've tapped into the generator in a different way through the baby. They become like Sarah Smith in The Great Divorce when Lewis comments that isn't it a bit unfair that all of these people were in a sense her children and all that or her lover and he said no 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 it wasn't like that because of the quality of her love these these children they went back and loved their parents better because of the quality of her love these 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 men who who saw her goodness and loved it they went back and loved their wives better I, I'm gonna push back a little bit on what you said but I think we can resolve it and still be friends so in Mere Christianity, Lewis says, if you want to get wet, you've got to get into the water. Mm. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close or even into the thing that has them. That is my answer of how you get, how you get attached to this generator. But what I then go on to say is that 
this is not restricted to all of the Christian things. In Catholic theology, we say that God instituted the sacraments, but he is not limited to them. And it's a similar idea that Lewis says in Mere Christianity when he talks about uh, that we receive the divine life through Holy Communion, that we receive the divine life through baptism, through faith. But these aren't the only things. These are just really good ways of getting that divine life into you. And it's not an alternative to really trying to live out the Christ life, trying to live like Jesus would live. And I would say the, th- the, the things that you've, that you've spoken of, these other ways, I'd say they're all sort of tied up in that insofar as to forgive is a very Jesus thing to do. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, and, and babies, tying it back to Tolkien, that's us fulfilling the law in which we're made. We are being sub-creators. And there's something inherent in that, that we are living as we should live. We're living in the way that God designed us to imitate him in that certain capacity. I loved your earlier example of uh, Sarah in The Great Divorce, too. And uh, I wonder, Matt and David, are The Great Divorce, Until We Have Faces, your two favorite books by Lewis? Because everything seems to come back to these books. Because they are among my, like I'd say, top five for sure. Maybe even top three books by Lewis. We have a constant war with Andrew. He says, well, I agree with Lewis that Till We Have Faces is far and away my best book. But both Matt and I, we prefer The Great Divorce. They're both phenomenal books. I just think the breadth of The Great Divorce Mm. and these little vignettes, it it covers a lot of ground, a lot of material, so that you always have a ready example. (laughs) Whereas with Till We Have Faces, you've got to mull over it, you've got to chew over it and and draw out some things that are kind of subtle that are going on. Whereas I think... uh, Lewis presents it a little bit more readily in The Great Divorce. Mm. Mm. <laughs> well, but returning to your pushback, whether we can be friends or not depends on whether screw tape or God is right. Is it a zero-sum game or not? I mean, when you're pushing back, are you, are you diminishing me or, or, or not? Um, I think the, the question of Christian love is really, really interested and interesting and we... We need to reserve a, a, an hour for this uh, and just talk about it. There's, there's a dispute, there's a debate going on whether su- such a thing exists and what that could mean. Uh, did Christianity really introduce a new kind of love into human relationships that was lacking before? Um, and what exactly was it? You know, obvious easy answers that could be disqualified would would be that you know the new love was this unselfish love um that's that, that's rubbish even the example of the good samaritan proves it wrong here is the non-christian the non-jew the pagan who everybody recognizes loves best out of all the examples so it's not a uniquely christian um attribute unselfishness but what is and what exactly did um, christianity introduce into the world in terms of love that was lacking there well we can leave that that question aside and just return to your example of stepping into the thing you want to um, imitate or receive the good contagion as lewis puts it in mere christianity of zoe the new spiritual life and that baptism and the Eucharist and so on, they're not the only means of 
grace, but they're special means of grace. And I agree. I'm not sure how much I don't have a position on this because I don't understand it fully, but how powerful they are. I mean, we have examples of of priests who daily receive communion, right? And uh, so they're they, they're tapped into this amazing sacrament, and yet they can do terrible, terrible things in their night. Mm-hmm. And so you need something else as well. So we can't be naive or simplistic about it. Um, but I don't deny it. I don't deny it. But I do think that someone raised well outside of visible Christian circles can actually be a better lover than someone who's been going to mass and communion all their lives. And I think Mm -hmm. we see this. This is empirically a fact, I believe. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, we will revisit this when we do The Four Loves. I have many more thoughts, but (laughs) we need to finish this letter. So we discussed the philosophies of heaven and hell. We understand their different outlooks. And so as Screwtape rounds the, the final portion of this letter, he turns to the subject of sex. And as is the case with Screwtape, he has some very interesting things and surprising things to say. Because he says sex could have been, at least from hell's point of view, quite innocent. It could just have simply been another way in which uh, a stronger person can exert their, their power and their strength over someone who's weaker. Mm. Uh, and he, in that he recalls almost wistfully how mating among spiders concludes with the bride eating the groom. Uh, it's, it's clearly what Screwtape would much prefer to happen with humans, but uh, fortunately for us, that rarely happens in human mating. Uh, but he does point out that there are a number of characteristics about sex that are in heaven's favor. Mm. He says, the enemy has gratuitously associated affection between the parties with sexual desire. He has also made the offspring dependent on the parents and given the parents an impulse to support it, thus producing the family. The members are more distinct, yet also united. The whole thing, in fact, turns out to be simply one more device for dragging in love. It's so easy to think of sex as a thing that's on the side of sin and Satan, but Screwtape is very refreshing. He points out that there's a mm. almost natural holiness to it, a natural sacramentality and it's something that gives rise to affection between the couple. And it's the very thing that builds families. Yes, this is what I meant at the beginning when I, when I talked about Screwtape bemoaning something in creation. Not denying it, actually admitting that at least here, God is uh, the enemy from his point of view, is not lying. This is, this is how it is. He has managed the enemy has managed to combine pleasure, sex, and procreation in a way that he finds very distasteful, but humans do not. And also the comparison to the husband-eating spider <laughs> accentuates human uniqueness. Maybe uniqueness is, is too strong, but certainly... Um, our way of lovemaking, our way of procreating isn't shared with the majority of other species that God created that have evolved on this earth. Um, So we are special, whether we're entirely unique, I don't know, 
but we seem to be special. We actually, we really enjoy copulation. <laughs> we, uh, we don't mind it at all. In some other species, it can be very brief. It can be very brief in our species too. Um, in some other, but in some other species, it's by nature very brief and by nature very violent. It's the brief violent act is all that some species know. And it doesn't look very pleasurable. I'd love to talk to a biologist who's specialized, who's done some research in this to understand to what extent animals, for example, enjoy their whatever is equivalent for sex in their uh, process of procreation. Um, another thing, another disparity between us humans and, and many other species is that we don't abandon our children on average. We don't kill them when we certainly don't eat them as many other animals do, like fish. And so all of this is present in, in this paragraph in the screw tape letters. It, does, it raises a lot of interesting questions. Mm-hmm. And Screwtape then raises another interesting question. We get a little bit of a Bible study because he talks about the one flesh union of sex. And he says that this is used to describe married couples regardless of the happiness or romantic fervor of their marriage. And he says humans are very quick to to forget about this. And he makes the point that when St. Paul writes to the Corinthians that mere copulation makes a couple one flesh. He says that the truth is that whenever a man lies with a woman there, whether they like it or not, a transcendental relation is set up between them that must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6. I think what he's saying is that when a couple come together, something mystical and transcendent happens, regardless. Uh, I remember a chastity speaker speaking about sex, and they, they compared it to getting two pieces of paper putting some glue and then squishing them together mm. and then trying to pull them apart. Mm. It says you always, you always, you always rip some of the paper. Yes. So that's ultimately what happens when a couple comes together and then they don't stay together, which is a, a vivid image. But I, I think it gets the point across that there is no such thing as casual sex. Mm-hmm. There is sex, which is had casually. Mm. No casual sex, just sex, which has been had casually. I like that. This is, it's not easy to understand. I certainly don't understand it fully. Three things come to mind from this long section in the letter, two of which I don't understand. Maybe you can help me with those two. Uh, one, uh, one of which I think I understand. But the first of the two that I don't understand fully is, is precisely this. I don't understand St. Paul fully. Notice, by the way, that Screwtape has read the Bible. (laughs) He's dipped into the generator, but it really didn't convert him. So he's placed himself pretty close to, you know, the word of God, and it didn't Mm -hmm. convert him. I do understand that St. Paul is saying that sex is, is more important than we realize. Yeah, I get that. And the analogy of gluing the pieces of paper together is... Is good. It's a it's a good analogy. It, but like all analogies, it kind of still just rephrases the problem, begs the question, doesn't explain to us why this is so. Why is 
a divorce, for example, like Lewis says? Why is it more like vivisection, cutting open an, a living organism, than it is merely a readjustment of business partners? And so maybe St. Paul's point about the sexual union and the permanence of permanences, the dependencies that result from sexual union has a part to play in why divorce is vivisection more than it is readjustment of business partners, but doesn't explain it fully. Now, what could St. Paul mean? I mean, when does he say mean that I'm married to the first person I have sex with? Does he mean that I'm married with every to every person that I have sex with, with, um, or or what? Many people who have had sexual relations you know, prior to getting married with different people, they'll they, they might say that it's a mixed bag, that you know they they were wounded. And they bring these wounds into the new relationship and the new relationship, the marriage, perhaps part of it, the function of it is to heal your older wounds and allow these wounds to heal together, just like the two pieces of paper that are glued together, uh, that you're healed by each other's wounds somehow that God uses marriage, for example, as sacramentally to heal us. But then other people will report that, you know, they'll report nothing. I don't, that they don't feel anything. The past sexual relationships don't consciously seem to affect their lives. Or some will say that they ha it helped them. You know, they've learned stuff. Not, I'm not, I don't mean like positions, David. I mean like they've learned stuff about life or whatnot through this relationship. That may benefit another relationship perhaps. So I don't fully understand Paul here. Um, do you? <laughs> you asked a series of questions like, are you married to the first person that you sleep with? I would say no, but there is a transcendental relation that's set up when that happens. What does that mean? It, it, here we're into the realms of ontology <laughs> and understanding everything that makes us up both spiritually and physically. And that there's a relationship between the two and that having sex with somebody affects both. It affects you physically, because it's a physical act, but that there is also a spiritual dimension that changes you in that process. Now, quite what that means, I think, is hard to say. Mm. But at the same time, I think you can look at enough heartbreak to see, well, whatever it is, is really powerful. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like dynamite. Handle with care. Mm -hmm. And if somebody reports that, no, they don't think that it changed them or it was positive. Well, I mean, the fact they said, well, it could have been positive about them. Well, actually, I don't doubt it because that's Screwtape's point. Mm. Sex is a good. This is something designed by God, ordered to good things. I therefore shouldn't really be surprised if even if it wasn't done with the exact manufacturer's recommendations, that it would still produce good things. That doesn't actually surprise me. Mm. The only difference is, is that it said, okay, well, if it was good like that, let me show you a better way. Let me show you what this was actually meant to do to not simply isolate one kind of pleasure, as Lewis says, mm. but to bring many more of them to bear. 
I, I recently got married, and one of the things both my wife and I have said, we just can't imagine wanting anything less than this. Hmm. Because it's more than just snuggling in bed on the Saturday morning. <laughs> you know, there's so much there's so much more good stuff that comes with it that seems part and parcel uh, and tied up in a way that's very hard to pick out. But I think that again we're back to the logic of heaven: the fact that it's not just a simple economy of exchange. Mm. That there is new life, both in a very literal sense, uh, but also in a more metaphorical sense, that springs up around this. Maybe we can agree that what's all clear from experience and from St. Paul's letters is that sex is more important than we realize. Exactly how that is so is the more difficult to understand and, under, and unpack. The other bit, David, that I didn't understand fully was the bit in the parenthesis where Screwtape says that, you know, don't forget to tell your buddy that the marriage service is offensive. <laughs> now, if he had said, don't forget to tell the wife that the marriage service is offensive, I might understand how a modern feminist might find it offensive that the father gives the bride to the groom or details like that. But Skrutep is talking about the man. What do you think would be offensive in a, in a marriage service in the 1940s in England? I could think of a lot, actually. Uh, firstly, <laughs> if recent culture has taught us anything, it's that some people can get very indignant and insulted on behalf of other people. Mm. So <laughs> a man could be insulted on, on behalf of his wife. You could also be kind of offended at the, well, the things that you promise. Uh, you promise for better, for worse, uh, welcoming children from God. Oh, this seems very low. And uh, because of the work of, of the novelists and the poets... Uh, humans have, have come to think that romance and falling in love is the pinnacle, and therefore anything less than that is is somehow low. Screwtape says that you know the intention of loyalty to a partnership for mutual help, the preservation of chastity, the transmission of life, that's that's something that humans now think is lower than just a storm of emotion that they don't have a whole lot of control over and which will inevitably fade. Uh, I think lastly, the other thing about the marriage service is you're, you're promising something incredible. The old form in the Anglican usage said, with my body, I thee worship. Yes. That, well, that was what I thought about, too. Is that offensive? I think it's offensive to a lot of people in a lot of ways. Uh, <laughs> one, surely we should only worship God. Well, okay, maybe worship doesn't mean quite what you think it means. Uh, with my body, well, that's all that's all a bit physical. Right? It's not the high spiritual idealist love. Um, yeah, mm. this is 2020 and 2021. People are professionals at being offended by stuff. <laughs> yes, but they would be offended by whatever it was already in 1939 um, or, or the forty. I think it's a good point. Maybe if the man has been duped by screw tape to believe in this idolatry of love, idolatry of romantic love, where the falling in love is is put first instead of kept important, but second, all these reminders of marriages, other functions and values may be offensive to this religious worshiper of Eros because they're in comp competition with this idol that has been erected in their philosophy of love. 
So yeah, thanks for that. The only bit that I found maybe easy to understand was the so, so indirect suggestion here that romantic marriages are a modern invention. Hmm. Screw tape saying that it's quite recent. And as a result, many people today are un, perhaps unnecessarily sadly single for no good reason. They're still waiting for the one and maybe they'll never realize that the one is a myth. There is no such thing as the one. Rather, everybody is the wrong. You know, we're all wrong for each other. I mean, men and men and women promising to live together in the same house until the until they dead. I mean, that that's just crazy. <laughs> we bring in our wounds. We wound the other. We change. So the person you agree to love forever changes, and you change. So yes, the, the myth of one the one has really ruined a lot of relationships and led to a lot of heartbreak. The point at which I knew Marie was the one was when I was putting a ring on her finger and making her the one. There you go. That's what Tolkien tells his son, Michael, in a famous letter where he says that the one, your, your soulmate, he doesn't say the one, but he says your soulmate. Your soulmate is the woman you happen to marry. <laughs> so that's who's, your, who's the one? The one you happen to marry. Or even less romantically, the one you happen to be married with. That's, now, that, that's now, I'm just going to backtrack a little bit because my wife will listen to this. <laughs> you are led to that on a wonderful, happy journey of self-discovery and discovery of the other person. But yeah, ultimately, there is a choice. And I, I think you're right. The, the, it's, it sounds so unromantic to say that the, the, the one isn't a thing. Yeah. It's, but, but the thing is, the danger of that kind of thinking is you're looking for the perfect person. And I'm sorry, if they're marrying you, <laughs> that's not going to be the case. Some find it unromantic or even unsexy. But if it's true, if it's true that a good lover is a good person, for example, that's not a very terribly sexy definition of a good lover, but a good lover is a good, virtuous person. If that's true then it's the only sexy thing on the market. Everything else will lead to heartbreak. So whatever is, is not true cannot be, in reality, sexy at all. It's a facade. I think my message is the sexiest one. It's only apparently <laughs> not unromantic, but in the long run, it's the only one. I'll just mention the TV show, Married at First Sight, that brings together couples at their own wedding. Now, this is sometimes accused as being anti-Christian. But I think the, the people who accuse this of being anti-Christian have been duped by screw tape to take the romantic view as the so-called Christian position where things have to follow a certain order, starting with falling in love. That perhaps if it was done right and done well and ethically, the married at first side TV show might actually be a reminder of the heart of marriage, which returns will and the talent and the virtue of love to the heart of marriage instead of emotion, for example, not disparaging emotion, but 
putting first things first. So um, check your bias, I'd say, to critics. <laughs> yeah, I think there is something so wonderful when somebody tells you, I'm going to choose you. Mm. And I was going to make it my job to choose you in everything, mm. whether I'm feeling it or not. Because I, I live with me. I can be kind of annoying. <laughs> yeah, I choose you and I give up my right to appeal to excuses or to blame external factors, blame my parents, blame, blame your friends, blame sin in you, blame sin in me. I'm doing this out of free will and I choose you and I choose you every day. It's very powerful. Very. Let's wrap up this chapter with a quotation from Mere Christianity. As I said at the beginning, some of some of the stuff is kind of hard to parse out because we're getting it from the Scrutapian point of view. Mm. We can't trust everything he says. Everything is upside down. So here is Lewis speaking about falling in love a little bit more didactically in the sixth chapter of book three of Mere Christianity. And hopefully this will clear things up and then we'll move on to unscrewing Screwtape. Lewis writes, being in love is a good thing but you cannot make it the basis of a whole life. It is a noble feeling, but it is still a feeling. Now, no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity. Whatever people say, the state called being in love usually does not last. Who could bear to live with that excitement for even five years? What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendships? But of course, ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. I think Lush has vindicated us. We're not unromantic. <laughs> Good. Phew. Well, let's do a little bit of unscrewing screw tape. As I said, all that we read is upside down and back to front and from a twisted point of view. So if we can uh, straighten it out a little bit, what, what would you say are some do's and don'ts? for somebody when reading this letter? What should, what should they learn? Oh, there's so much distorted here in this letter. Unscrewing it might require a, a new letter written from the <laughs> heavenly point of view. But let's just take the quote of the week, for example, and start with that. And the quote of the week talked about being in love, being the only respectable ground for marriage. And so unscrewing that would be to say that being in love is not the only respectable ground for marriage. <laughs> there are other respectable grounds for marriage according to the enemy, according to God. And then the quote continues to say, marriage can and ought to render this excitement permanent. Now, the poets and the novelists have duped us into believing this is true, so obviously it cannot be true. So marriage cannot render this excitement permanent, at least not, not alone, not consistently, and it ought to is also false, because if we believe that marriage ought to render it permanently exciting, then it gives us a moral alibi for abandoning our lover for abandoning even our children once this is not true, once we realize this is not true. 
and that a marriage which does not do so is no longer binding. Okay, people, Screwtape is here saying that from God's point of view, marriage is binding, even if you've lost being in love, even if the excitement is not permanent. God says marriage is binding. And then what do the disciples tell Jesus? Well, isn't it then better never to get married, <laughs> right? You can hear them starting to uninstall Tinder and OkCupid from their phones. <laughs> That's excellent stuff. Here, here are a few of mine. Do not view life as a zero-sum game. Do be careful about the media you consume, particularly regarding how it affects your notions of romance, sex, and marriage. Do remember that sex points to the things of heaven and sex is always significant. And lastly, do not think that emotional highs will last forever. Oh, that was perfect. I was making notes, David. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> really good. Well, Dr. Jason Lapuyavi, thank you so much for co-hosting with me today. My pleasure. Would you mind telling people where they can find out where they can get your stuff, your videos, your courses? Absolutely. So my, my newly resurrected YouTube channel is just my name, Dr. Jason Lepoyarvi. If you're more interested in academic publications, I've put all my C.S. Lewis and Tolkien stuff on my academia.edu website. And if you're interested in one-on-one -on -one Oxford style tutorials, check out studycslewis.com. And we'll have links to all of that in the show notes. And to wrap things up, we'd like to thank our, all of our top-tier supporters. That's Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. And this Thursday, Matt will be publishing his After Hours episode with Dr. Chris R. Armstrong, author of Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians. <laughs> Sorry, a cat just walked across the screen. All right, let's try that again. This Thursday, Matt will be publishing his After Hours episode with Dr. Chris R. Armstrong, author of Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians. With Lewis as their guide, they examine the spirituality of the medieval church and ask how it might enrich the lives of Christians today. And also, please join us next week on Tuesday's episode. Matt and I will be talking about another of Screwtape's letters, where Screwtape is accused of heresy, and he discusses the relative merits of Wormer's patient falling in love. And all that next time... We'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>